It would be so helpful to have your Bibles open, so Bible app ready, so James chapter 4. So this week is week 7 in our nine-week series in the letter of James. And today as we come to this section, we're really going to be focusing on the first 10 verses of, of chapter 4, so it'd be great to have your Bible ready. There's also an outline on the back of the news, so there are translation points in Dinka and Korean, if that's of help to you, uh, please do use that. Right now, let's ask for the ultimate help. Gracious God, thank you so much for this day. And we thank you that in your extraordinary grace that we can come to you right now and seek your help. So Lord, please, would you be at work in the power of your spirit, revealing the desires of our hearts that we might increasingly hunger and long for what you desire of us and of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. What causes fights and quarrels among you? You might think back to breakfast and think, let me count the ways. Uh, it's sad to say, but so often our experience and our observation of Christian community, we can only all too readily recount stories in which conflict has torn out and torn apart the fabric of God's people. Of course, it can include anything from the mundane to the significant. In the low household, uh, a little quibble about who is having first shower each night can rapidly erupt into a flurry of fighting. People can squabble about the petty, but also the profound. I'm so very thankful that in the eight and a half years that I've served here at St Bart's, I have rarely witnessed such fighting. But I know that there are people here who in their lifetimes have experienced firsthand and still carry the pain of when Christian community has been characterised by fighting. It rips the body apart, it causes some to walk away, it leaves wounds that can mar for years. It repels those who watch on. It damages our gospel witness. And according to James, it's not just because Christians are, you know, particularly argumentative or cranky, but that as God calls us into community, it challenges something really broken in our hearts. When James says, fights and the battles within, he's using military language. He's describing a warring with one another. So th this is not just merely disagreement that needs to be worked through in a loving way, but this is a, a, a violent fracturing of relationships as people approach one another as enemies. That's what he's describing here. It, it seems that the communities to whom James wrote were full of infighting. We don't precisely know the topics, but right here, the, the rich were not being mindful of the needs of the poor. Those with less were coveting what those uh, with more had. And we also see that some were judging their brothers and sisters in Christ. James doesn't spell out all the issues, because when he asks what causes fights and quarrels, he's not asking for an A to Z or Alpha to Omega of topics they know very well. In our lives, we likely know too. 
James is not asking what's the content of your fights and quarrels. James is asking what causes your fights and quarrels. Two radically different questions. Now, over the years, I have had plenty of foolish arguments. But I remember one in particular with my dad when I was in primary school. I had just read an article or something like that about hydroelectricity and how hydroelectricity is generated from the river system that feeds from Niagara Falls. They uh, divert water, they even pump some water into reservoirs in order that they can later on draw on that to have a continuity of electric, uh, electricity generation. It's, it's really amazing. But in my eight-year-old mind, I had not really understood that, and I had mistaken it to mean that what they actually do is that when the water falls from Niagara Falls, they then pump that back up the top so that you have a continuous flow of water and then some sort of perpetual energy generation. Now, that's actually not the case, as it turns out. And, and my dad, well, my dad, he tried to explain this to me, that this is not, in fact, how it worked, and that that would be impossible. But I just pressed on and pressed into my argument, even when I realised that I must be wrong. What caused this quarrel? What transformed it from being a discussion to a debate? Well, it wasn't differing views on hydroelectricity generation at Niagara Falls, but a dysfunctional desire within my heart to be right, even at the cost of truth and relationship. There are things about which we will disagree. There are times in which we need to work through those lovingly. But what, according to James, is at cause when it descends to fighting? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Well, James barely takes a breath. He says, the desires that battle within you. Desires that expose our pride. Desires that expose our double-mindedness towards God. Our dysfunctional relationships are the result of dysfunctional hearts. So let's break that down. The problem, our desires within, the danger of selfish desire, and the solution, how to submit to God. So first, the problem of our desires within. So let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, the battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So here it is. The, the true reason for the battles between us are often caused by the battles within us. And, and not just any battles within, but the battles of desire that lurk in our hearts. So that's immediately countercultural. So it must mean that the solution to fighting doesn't come from within. Actually, the problem comes from within. The word for desire that's used here is actually a word from which we get the English word hedonism. 
which is not only the pursuit of pleasure for the sake of it, but that the very purpose and the highest aim in our human existence, what we most need, is to satisfy our unrestrained individual desire. That's, that's hedonism. Now, we live in a culture saturated by that ideal. It's shaping us all the time. It's so easy to literally buy into that. Not only, of course, in material ways of more money and more possessions to bring us pleasure, but it can happen with status, achievement, relationships and recognition. That if, if my desire is fulfilled, then that is what will make me whole. Whenever I'm preparing couples for marriage and get to the part in the vows, they say for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, I have to tell you that, that no one, none of the couples I've prepared is ever thinking, wow, our marriage could really come under strain and be in trouble in the rich and healthy parts. You know, no one by default thinks that. People think it could be in the, the poorer and the sicker times that are more challenging. We're ingrained thinking that pleasure is the way to satisfaction. But James says, when we make the fulfilment of our desires our priority, it will inevitably spill out in all sorts of unhelpful ways and simultaneously pushing God to the periphery of our lives. So we see that in verses 11 to 12 as they slander one another, taking God's place as judge. We see that in verses 13 to 17 as they go about their business, making times and plans with no regard for God's will. And we see that in chapter 5 onwards as the rich hoard wealth completely disregarding God's call to care for the poor. And then we see that right here in chapter 4 in the way that they relate to one another in an ungodly way. Their misplaced confidence in themselves, their planning and their money, undermines their relationship with God and it puts them in competition with one another. In terms of the fighting going on, James Shaw's that shows us that cause and effect in two parts. So we see first, you desire what you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you can't get, so you fight. And the second part, you, you don't have because you don't ask God. When you do ask, you do so with wrong motive. So see this, the disordered desire, the disordered desire that's placed in pleasure, that they'll be satisfied. That's what they long for. And it does two things. It causes conflict amongst themselves, after all, you have what I want and need. And it causes conflict with God because I don't want to rely on you. I don't trust you're sufficient to ultimately satisfy. When James says you desire what you don't have so you kill, he's likely not saying you're literally going and killing people. He probably would have had some other things to say about that. But there's not only allusions with stories in the Old Testament of when people coveted and killed that, that come to mind, like uh, David's murder of, of uh, Uriah, or when Ahab and uh, Jezebel killed Naboth because he wouldn't give them uh, his vineyard. But James is probably also alluding to Jesus' words in which those who hate, hate brothers and sisters, well, they are put into the same basket as those who kill. 
And when James says you don't ask God for what you need, so clue, we're hearing that they're so far from God that they're not even praying. He's not saying that it's wrong to ask God to supply our need. But if you live like those things are the source of your ultimate comfort and purpose, rather than submitting them to the purposes of God, it's revealing something really broken with your relationship with God, that he isn't the ultimate source of your security, but just a mechanism to get the things you need to be secure. They're dysfunctional desires, and they're the cause of dysfunction with one another and with God. James really wants us to see the cause and effect between our desires and our debates. Uh, James isn't saying there won't be disagreement, that there isn't a right place for correction and bringing things to to light. Of course there is. He's been doing that all throughout the, the letter. But not only does it matter how we do that, but we must check in with what desire we're really feeding when we do. Am I hungry to uphold truth in love? Or am I hungry to be right and cheered on? Our hearts are so easily swayed. Uh, This week, wherever you are, whenever you're faced with potential conflict and you feel that that energy welling up inside in the face of potential conflict, do a desire check. Check in. What's driving me to respond? Some sort of dysfunctional desire of my heart or a kingdom desire reflecting God's heart. Check in with God, for you know the trajectory. James, back in chapter 1, said, after desire, that is, desire not of God, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, when fully grown, gives birth to death. We said all the time the way that plays out in, in fighting and warring. That's the problem. Second, it goes further. We see the danger of selfish desire. Uh, Fracture within Christian communities, not simply competing demands with others, but our sinful nature competing with what God demands. So verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity, that is opposition, against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. When James accuses the communities to whom he writes of friendship with the world, he's not chastising them for loving people who aren't Christians. Of course, they're meant to do that. He's not advocating some sort of separatist movement where Christians hide away as if the world is all bad or something like that. Uh, He's saying that when you put your trust in Jesus, you are no longer to live according to your own desires, just as the world does, but you are to live distinctively in line with what God desires. Our desire for the things of God should increase and our desire for the things of the world should decrease. However, he says it's evident that that's simply not true of you. He's kind of saying, instead of following God, you're marching to the beat of your own heart You're living your life, placing your hope, finding your security, setting your priorities, making your plans, 
in all the sorts of things, money, status, achievement, that the world does. You're your own meaning makers. You're doing you. And the result is that you are indistinguishable from everyone else. Your opposition to God's rightful place in your life, not recognising that he's God and you're not, means that you've set yourself up as an enemy of God rather than friends. You're hungry for the things of the world more than things of God. You might gather on a Sunday but then ignore what God loves during the week, sing, he, sing his praises one breath, but then disregard him with the next. Pray your will be done, but what really drives you, gets your attention and your focus, is my will be done. Now, when you hear all this, you might think, yikes, doesn't that seem a bit over the top? Doesn't it seem sort of petty and petulant or something like that? Like a school kid who doesn't like their best friend hanging out with any of the other, other kids? But that's not what is going on. James is talking about a divided allegiance. It's like claiming to be both a, a Maroons and a Blues supporter, or both a vegan and a meat eater, or something, something like that. Um, it'd be kind of like having uh, two full-time jobs with two different bosses. I, I don't know if you've heard about this, but since COVID and the increase from working from home, there's been a bit of a movement in the US of people advocating that it's possible and even preferable, especially in the tech industry, to have full, two, two full-time jobs without either organisation, without either boss knowing about the other. So there's all these articles about how you can do this and you should really do this, it's really uh, amazing. So not multiple part-time jobs or multiple contracted positions, but two full-time jobs with two different bosses who think that you are solely working for them. Uh, people are saying, that's my right. You should do this. Now, not only does that seem that that's going to come unstuck at some point, but surely these commitments are going to collide in competition at some point. What James is describing is much more serious than that. Because the image is not that of someone with a couple of bosses, but someone who has been unfaithful to their spouse. What does he say? You adulterous people. You're not just breaking a moral code. Actually, you're acting against a person. The prophets throughout the Old Testament use this sort of language to describe Israel's unfaithfulness to God in their worshipping of idols, their breaking of the covenant, and their disregard for the law. And the reason why they described it as adultery is because the image often used of the relationship with God and his church is that of a wonderful marriage. That's, that's the type of closeness that God longs for with his people. That, that's the image of Jesus, the bridegroom, and the church, his bride. That's why when James says that God is jealous, it means not that God is jealous of us, that would be really odd if God was jealous of us, wouldn't it? But, but that God is jealous for us. It means that when we hunger more for the things of the world rather than the things of God, we are really missing out. Verse 5. 
Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. When James says that uh, God jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, he's not saying that there are some Christians with the spirit and, and some without the spirit. He's saying that God longs for his spirit to take root in our lives. I find it so incredibly reassuring that with the battle going on within my own heart, uh, tearing and vying between one set of priorities and the priorities of God, that God hasn't given up on us, but he has given us even more grace. Or as we read in John's Gospel, grace upon grace. Uh, The cross is more powerful than our dysfunction. And we can revel in it by humbly coming to him. The solution to our dysfunction is to submit to God. We are humbly recognising who we are and recognising who God is, come to him. So as you have a look in your Bibles, verses 7 to 9 are really the practical, tangible steps of how we submit to God. But I want you to note first how actually this entire section is framed by humility. So we read verse 6, or halfway through verse 6, God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. And then framing that verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So humility is the basis of our approach. And we see for James that really consists of four things. Resist, come near, wash and grieve. So let's just briefly look at those one by one. So first, verse 7, resist the devil for when we do, he will flee from you. It's absolutely extraordinary that in the face of the devil, in the face of evil, of temptation not to go God's way, we don't need to launch and mount some sort of attack or have some mighty show of power in our own strength, but we simply need to resist him. Why? Because he's already a defeated enemy. Jesus has defeated the devil on the cross. And one day, evil, all evil, will be no more. Evil's days are numbered, and in the meantime, all that we need to do is to take a stand to resist against the enemy's ways and live for God's ways. Second, verse 8, come near to God and he will come near to you. It's because God has drawn close to us in both Jesus and his spirit that we can have every confidence that when we come near to God, simply by recognising who he is, we can be confident, we can have every guarantee of relationship with him. If you feel like you've drifted away from God or that you've been sidelining God for some time or you know, actually, honestly, you've been increasingly shaping your life according to the priorities of the world rather than the priorities of God. Perhaps you've, you've never come to God before. The amazing news is that he wants to be part of your life. And if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. Third, continuing in verse 8, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. 
Um, we should all really be experts by now, washing our hands, shouldn't we, after the last couple of years? It's such a frequent activity in, in the low household that Giovanna, our youngest, she came up very early with abbreviated form of hand sanitizer, so it quickly became Hanitizer. I was looking for a trademark for that, but sadly that didn't come through. But James, of course, isn't saying that we need to be physically washed clean or that somehow we can wash away our sin in our own strength. That's what Jesus has done. But that we would continually repent of following the ways of the world and be continually transformed in the likeness of his son by what we do. Fourth, verse nine, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. When you read this, you might think, well, James is being terribly pessimistic. But he's not saying that we need to make ourselves miserable with lots of negative thoughts or something like that. But remember, he's speaking to those who are really increasingly being reliant on themselves, chasing after things that do not last. He's saying that it's when, in humility, we see the reality of our own spiritual poverty that we can throw off the futility of self-reliance, we can recognise our desperate need for God's help and rejoice that the Lord is indeed the one who will lift us up. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Isn't it the desires that battle within? So let us, in humility, submit our desires to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for your extraordinary grace, your grace upon grace. We thank you that you are not distant from us, but that you indeed have drawn near. We are so sorry, Lord, for the times in which we desire the things of the world more than desiring what you long for. Lord, please forgive us for the times and in which we have let those dysfunctional desires cause warring and fights amongst your body. Forgive us those times when it has caused us to drift away from you. Lord, would you please help us, help us to be single-minded, that we would submit our whole lives to you for your glory and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.